Brothers and sisters, please help me welcome and let's give a Muhammad Moss number 32, Phoenix, Arizona, well round of applause to our brother, our friend, student minister, Akbar Muhammad, the international representative of the Honorable Minister Louis Farrakhan. Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim. In the name of Allah, the Beneficent, the Merciful, I bear witness there is no God but Allah, and I bear witness that Muhammad is the Messenger of God. I greet you in peace. As-salamu alaykum. First and foremost, I want to thank Allah for blessing me to be here with you this morning. It's still morning here in Phoenix, right? Yes, sir. And, uh, but I thank Allah that I can live to be here. And it looks like in the last year I've been here quite a few times, more so than in the past. But I also next would like to thank the Honorable Minister Louis Farrakhan, yes. who gives us an opportunity to represent him in the work that I believe that Allah has put on his shoulders and the weight that's on his shoulder and how he's been blessed over these years to handle that weight. Yes, sir. I would like to thank um, Brother Minister Charles, his officials, and all of those who make me feel so welcome in Phoenix uh, when I come here. I really appreciate it. And then for you to come out on Sunday, you have the opportunity to look at the hookup from Chicago and really stay at home and relax. But this is your mosque and you come out on Sunday. And I pray Allah will bless me and my words, which I'm going to try. I'm asking Allah to help me not to be long. See, when you get older, you got long stories. And you just... <laughs> And many times you repeat them. <laughs> but I, I use the excuse as a senior, uh, repetition is the art of learning, okay? <laughs> so, but I want to thank you very much. Um, I was listening to the news report from outside of Pittsburgh where our brother was killed. And uh, of course, the death of any Muslim, but in particular a brother selling his papers and then is gunned down. The details are not in, so it's difficult to comment on it. It's people want to know, you know, was it a white boy? And then other people are saying the atmosphere that the um, man in the White House, whose elevator evidently doesn't go to the top, he's crazy as hell. So. Uh, whether he has created an atmosphere in America that this would happen to a brother. Uh, my subject today is a search for purpose in your life. And even though you would not articulate it and say, I'm searching for my purpose, but it's inside. It's a thought because you always wonder if you're a spiritual person grounded in God, you always wonder what would God have me to do? And is, is there a purpose in my life? And there is. Every one of us has a purpose in life. And uh, I thought over my subject, I've been teaching it in different cities, 
but I thought especially when I heard the news about brother being killed. I think about my son who is out in the back. He is a student at Howard University. I think about him in the streets selling paper and somebody walk up and shoot him down or your son or your husband. And so we have to see and you can't be quick to make judgment until you get the facts. You know, was it one of the uh, white boys? That's the western part of Pennsylvania, which is Trump territory. These are the people who use the slogan, make America great again, really meaning make America white again. And that's what it's really about. So we have to look at our purpose. When uh, I heard the teaching of the Nation of Islam at 18 years old in uh, New York City, uh, I was searching, but it was a particular time in history, as this is a particular time in history. It was the time of the civil rights struggle, and people were trying to make some changes in America. And Allah knows we have suffered in America, and that's why he came. Uh, we have suffered. Since the time they brought the first slaves out of Africa, black people have suffered. And we've always tried to reach for uh, acceptance, number one. Equality, we didn't see that, but we saw that maybe we can be accepted by white folks if we prove our ability and that we be nice guys to them and so forth. They will accept us. And over these 400 years, they have not accepted us. And we've been a problem for, for them and a thorn in their side. And when Trump a few weeks ago said that he was putting out approximately 34,000 Liberians and he wanted to deport them immediately, but some people with cooler heads prevailed on him that perhaps that you should give them time to get their lives together. You know, many of them came here very young during their uh, tragic civil war in Liberia, which I just left last week. Um, and so he gave them a year. But it shows you his mentality. What he's doing with the Liberians, he'd like to do with all of us. OK, and it's real. So we asked Allah's guidance uh, first to our leader. Um, there is a book that I read many years ago, and you know my passion for books and literature. And I'm so happy to see so many Muslims writing books. Brother Eric just gave me a copy of his book the other night, and Sister Betty has her book, and Sister Ava's book, and Brother Dimitri, and all of the research team that have written books. Because out of the nation has to come a body of literature. Otherwise, people write about us, and they describe us from the outside, where your description of us is from the inside. So maybe the purpose in your life is to document your life, to talk about your life. Tonight they will have a young man on uh, television and he's on the front of our newspaper and they will talk about his life, but your life becoming a Muslim. And so when you came, you were searching for a purpose. I, you sat in a mosque somewhere, and I'm talking to the Muslims and those who became followers. And the nation was like a training camp for many of you. Many of you came and you stayed. I came at 18 and I stayed. And uh, as time went by, I never even thought about going nowhere else because this is what I gave my life to. Many of you come and you hear it and it becomes a wake up message. 
It becomes a message that brings you to a level of consciousness. It's a message that helps you to put God in the center of your life because you were in a dilemma how you should even worship. You thought you were okay with the white Jesus on the wall and feeling that all of God's prophets were white men or white women or what have you until you heard Islam. And things begin to change in your mind. And so before you made a decision, there's the point of confusion. Some people don't like to say, I'm unsure of myself right now. But in your mind, you know what happens. So, but when you heard this word, there was something different about it. There's something that seemed to appeal to you. Even those who have left the nation 20 years ago, you can meet them today and ask them, how you doing? Say, what's your faith? I'm a Muslim. And even though he may not have attended a mosque, he may not have made his prayers or fast during Ramadan, I'm a Muslim. Because there's something about the power of Islam in your life. That you just can't shake it. It doesn't go anywhere. There was a book that Malcolm used to quote when I was a young Muslim called The Rising Tide of Color. And in it, there's a part about the uh, black man. And they were saying, the writer, a British writer started, was saying that for some reason, Islam appeals to the nature of the black race. He went through all of the races. And I can bear witness that it is true because look at the appeal of Islam to the black man and woman of America without the agency of the white man telling you, you should do this or do that. But that appeal changed the course of your life. So there is a search for purpose in your life. That search is very, very real. Um, I thought when I heard about the brother, I just kept going over in my mind. And the pain of a brother being killed, we saw it with the Honorable Elijah Muhammad when one of our brothers was killed in Texas or James Shabazz in Newark, New Jersey, who was shot down in front of his house. We know the pain that he had and even to the brother in Texas, he said, I will not rest until those who killed my uh, minister. He was a young minister in Texas. So that pain is in the nation this morning. And the brother was married. He had uh, children, I think one or two children. And he was out defining his purpose and life and reality. And that's using the weapon of the final call to wake up a black man or a black woman. So I pray Allah, uh, and as the weeks go, things will unfold and the final call will cover it. Uh, I'm going to try not to be long. I know it's difficult, uh, but I'm going to try. And I said in my older age, I was going to have to do something different. And that's try to be short. But everybody said, well, brevity, Akbar, is not one of your attributes. You know, you so bear with me. And I want to say, uh, Brother Hugh, uh, where's Brother Hugh at? Right here in front of me. Brother Hugh, I was listening to your voice quality in the back. <laughs> and he's a good preacher for the minister. He, and may Allah bless you in San Diego. And I want to say this. Uh, I'm going to try to stick to the point. But Brother Hugh, you said something important to me in the back. And that's community involvement. And the importance of community involvement right now, and I made a note of it. And what, Akbar, what do you mean by community involvement? Our target is our people. But you have to be involved in the struggle of our people. Their struggle, you may see it as something different, but it's all one struggle. So, you know, some of our brothers 
across the country, if people invite him, are you inviting a minister to speak? Are you inviting Hugh to speak or Tony to speak or Brother Charles to speak? No, we just want them to attend. And they should accept that engagement. They should encourage the Muslims. I go to some cities and I could name them here where I'm in the city speaking to an outside group and only the minister and his assistant comes. But and, and so and it's a group of non-Muslim people who invited me in to speak. But you don't show up just to minister and his assistant or one or two brothers. What about the whole mosque? Do you know the impact that you would have if they saw the Muslims involved? You, you strengthen them. You give them a good feeling of security when they see that you're involved. But if you say later for those dead Negroes, I ain't thinking about. They should just accept the Honorable Elijah Muhammad, become a follower of Minister Louis Farrakhan later for them. See, so that's not the thing to do, in my opinion today, because you need allies. Because when this devil comes against us, you need those people who love you, respect you, know the goodness of the Muslim and the nation, and will be your allies in the struggle against an enemy that wants to destroy us. So, so as you search for your purpose in life, I want to mention this. Um, in 1967, the Honorable Elijah Muhammad spoke in Phoenix. Do I have anybody that can remember that here? He spoke here in Phoenix. Sister Betty, the Honorable Elijah Muhammad spoke here. And um, a brother named Ron Karinga um, came and heard him. And if you could research the article that Karinga wrote after he heard the Honorable Elijah Muhammad. And it brought him, even though he considered him uh, cultural nationalism and he was into the Afrocentric thing, but it was the Honorable Elijah Muhammad. When I read that article, I was really moved by it because he heard a word that gave him insight to what the struggle for justice, freedom, justice, and equality of the black man and woman should be about. And he got on that road. Many brothers, sometimes we can be a little narrow. Oh, them, them nationals, they doing this. or oh, them Panther brothers. But they are allies in a struggle. They may see things a different way. And that relationship has to be cultivated. And Karinga, it actually changed the course of his struggle by what he heard come out of the mouth of the Honorable Elijah Muhammad in this city. I like to describe Phoenix, uh, Mosque 32, the Adoration. That's the name of that uh, chapter in the Quran. And uh, the adoration that the Honorable Elijah Muhammad had for this city. And it was a place of his healing. And Sister Betty, that's why it's important in your book uh, that you can get that information directly and get a feel for him. So I was in California yesterday. And there are brothers that come into the nation searching for what they want to do. The average brother that comes here for the first time and hears a minister preach, um, whether he is a good preacher or whether he is a mediocre preacher, but he hears him. And the first desire, I wonder if I can do that. I'd like to do that. I mean, and it's all right. You won't go and confess. I, I went there and I heard the teachers, I want to become a minister. You would never say it, but inside you're thinking it, okay? And you, because you're searching for your, your purpose. When I first came to the mosque, like any others, it's just that when it was time to get up and accept, 
I hesitated until I looked at the two security officers standing on each side. Okay, but but uh, brother, could you get, get the brother a chair so he could sit over here? Because I'm only going to be three hours. I'm <laughs> so let him get get a chair and have a seat. Okay. <laughs> so the reason that I had got up is because there were two brothers a little bigger than this brother and I remember them they were standing up there like they were eating nails and looking and I was actually saying man if I don't get up with the rest of these people these guys might jump on me so, so I stood up that was on February the 13th 1960 it was the greatest move I made in my life um, to date I've been to 154 countries in the world and coming out of New York I would have never if I didn't accept the teaching of the Honorable Elijah Muhammad never would I have seen it I lived in Africa for 12 years of my life and uh, out of the 54 countries in uh, Africa some say 55 because of the Western Sahara I visited 44 on behalf of Minister Farrakhan in the Nation of Islam and that's a ble and I realize it's a blessing. And the older I get, I know it is. Um, if you didn't get a copy of my book, I hope you will, uh, because it's a stepping stone to me to complete my autobiography before Allah takes me, and I want to do it in the next year. But uh, in it, when you open it up, the first chapter in it is my love of Africa and my going to Africa. And sometimes I look back uh, when I was in finishing high school in my yearbook. Uh, now imagine I didn't know that much about anything, but under my uh, little writing you put under your picture, I have uh, more school than Africa. That, that was interesting. And I ended up going to Africa. And I'm, this is searching for purpose. There's some things that you have on your mind that you would like to do. And you can't sit and pray and say, God, rain something down in, from heaven and make it happen for me. But if you believe in it and you're searching and you work on it, then God can de deliver it to you. Yes, it's human. And many brothers who came to the nation because of how the nation straightened their life out, you know, how the nation gave them discipline, uh, help them with their family and they feel this overwhelming commitment to share it with others that's why you find a Muslim brother he's always preaching matter of fact if you get him going nobody else has anything to say only thing they can say <laughs> only thing they can say is thank you and if it's another Muslim he just said walaikum salam okay <laughs> but he feels this overwhelming commitment because the power of Islam in his life. And when you organize and move things, there's always hiccups and bumps in the road. But you don't get mad and take your marbles and go home. But you take a page from Sarah Palin. She said, don't retreat, reload. That was the only wise thing I heard her say. <laughs> so your search for what you're going to do in life is there. If God blesses you, you want to raise a beautiful family and instill in those children 
what you want them to be as you perceive it. And then you have your own legacy. When you're 21, you don't think about death, 25, 30. But death comes to us all because Allah has ordained that. God has ordained that. Then as you get older, you talk about your legacy. What have you accomplished in life? What have you done in life? Um, you were not just a problem. I never forget how uh, preachers would do a funeral. And a person who was a problem to everybody, even himself in life, when the preacher stands up there, especially when you hire a preacher that don't even know him, you just got to do the funeral service. And he heard about him, and so he goes to moaning. And what he's really saying is no good Negro did nothing but give everybody a fit. And I'm trying to bury him right now. In the name of Allah, let that not be your legacy, okay? You know, uh, I was blessed through Minister Farrakhan to visit the Honorable Elijah Muhammad two times. It was um, 1972 and 1973 where the minister called the message and asked him, could he bring me out? And uh, the hallmark of the Honorable Elijah Muhammad, and I got a witness in the audience, uh, Sister Betty, was kindness. And, uh, and he was kind. And he was really teaching us. And he told Minister Farrakhan like this, I didn't send you to beat the savage, I send you to teach him. And the way you teach people is through kindness. And it's a hallmark of Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him. He talked about kindness and goodness. Of course, sometimes you got to get some Negroes straight. But it does not stop you from being kind to people. You know, I was... Um, at a meeting yesterday in San Bernardino, right outside, and uh, the assistant supreme captain was there. It was a beautiful training class. Anybody here was present yesterday? Okay. It was a beautiful class. And uh, they were talking about their responsibility as soldiers to protect the faith, you know, to defend the leadership of the nation. And people have to be positive about yourself. That's the beautiful thing. I'm going to take a minute to talk about this in searching for your purpose in life. Um, they were talking about the training and uh, the uh, GM, you know, Assistant Supreme Captain Brother Anthony Muhammad from New York that I knew from the time he was a little boy like this running around the school. And he was talking about the and beautiful lecture. I mean, he really taught about your responsibility. And even in learning the martial arts, you don't learn it to fight and to beat up people, but really it's defense, defending yourself. But it makes you positive. In a world that's gone crazy with the gun shooting and all of that, and you have to know that you are a man and you have to defend your faith. And when you know the arts, when I was a young Muslim, my captain in New York said, some of you brothers are not into the martial arts, but you need to learn something because you got a wife and a family, you know. And when you know the arts and you're a man, you can stand up. I don't care if he has a gun. God may deliver his gun into your hand because you do know the arts, but you don't go to running and so forth. And I thought that that was beautiful yesterday so remember the words kindness 
It's very important. And I just want to digress for one minute to talk about Moses Powell, Moses X Powell. Anybody know that? Musa Muhammad? Uh, his legacy and his story, because I got a brother from New York who knows him well in the training class. And I remember when he got permission to train the sisters also. Um, but the thing about it is that in 1985, five of us, I think it was five of us, Dr. Minister Farrakhan, Dr. Khalid, myself, Mustafa, Salim, uh, and there was one more person on the trip. And what happened, we went to see Brother Gaddafi, and he told the minister, he suggested to the minister he should tour the Muslim world. So we went to Syria, we went to uh, Abu Dhabi, Dubai, we went to the Sudan, uh, and we went to all of it, we went to Egypt. But we went to countries in the Muslim world, mainly the Arab and North African world, and Gaddafi opened the door for us, as he did for our world tours. And uh, I'll never forget, uh, you know, we were in a, a strange environment, but there was Musa Muhammad, a man who trained. And if you want to do research, I mentioned this uh, in California yesterday, go to the New York times when his master died you'd have to get one of the brothers to get it was a korean who taught him and when the new york times uh highlighted the death of this korean master teacher in america there was a picture of musa muhammad and he trained brothers uh he trained the gm the assistant supreme captain he trained the captain of the nation of islam the supreme captain but the, and the reason I'm showing you this because in their search to find their purpose in life, Musa Muhammad found his purpose in life in his training of the FOI and the MGT and the martial arts. The outside world would look at it, see those Muslims are militant, see how they train and whatnot. But no person in the world who belongs to a nation or society would have them to be weak and not brave. And so when you go out in the street and you look at your people, some of us want to walk on the other side because they look problematic. But what you should do, these are your people, these are your babies. We brought them on the planet. And what they are is a result of the madness that the white man taught in this world. It's learned behavior from the white man. So these are the brothers and sisters that we have to approach. We don't walk by on the other side. Your purpose in life may be to go after one of them. There may be ten, but God will bless you to get one who will come and change the course of his life and clean his or her life up. And so you, your purpose there, but also knowing some martial arts help you to be positive and not walk on the other side, okay? So the trip that we made overseas was an unbelievable trip, and it opened the door. I want to mention that the enemy of the rise of the darker nations of the world understands since he broke out of Europe what he has done. He has uh, messed up the world, even the environment. He has corrupted people. He has murdered, going after the riches of the earth that was under our feet. That's what he did. So in the world today, there's a battle between what they call the East and the West. 
Trump is now trying to patch that up first starting with Korea and then we'll see how he deals with Russia and um, a man wrote a novel but the novel was based on the fact it was called the Mahdi and it's about the uh, coming of a Mahdi there was movement in the CIA and there was movement in the KGB in uh, Moscow and each side was studying the movement so the CIA brother, this is a, a excellent novel for you to read because it talks about the reality of the day um, the author and I believe I'm right and you can google it it's uh, the book is called the Mahdi the author is McQuillan um, MC uh, Q look look and see if you can see it the Mahdi it's called so each one bear with me on this was checking out trying to figure out what the other one was doing the CIA was meeting with the national security and their people in the book because they knew that they had to control the Muslim world not the control of the Muslims but control of the resources that the West needed and that's oil so they said how can we get control of that world and so one of the CIA officers uh, in the book is uh, written to be said what are the Muslims looking for and another one said they're looking for Hamati uh, they're looking for Mahdi who used, would come at the end of the time and do this and that so another one said well why don't we make a Mahdi and control it so they begin to set out and you see in the book that they start anybody read this book I've mentioned it in some of my lectures so they started out in Jordan they had to find a man that kind of fit the profile and after they had identified the man they put their agents around them you know like they put agents in the mosque there's a word in, in the Islam called fitna anybody know that word fitna confusion madness so agents don't come in to come in and beat somebody up or, or come in to arrest you for something they don't come in for that but they want to create confusion where you are not kind to each other where you don't speak somebody's always poisoning the atmosphere talking against the leadership say and they're problematic they don't you, they don't greet you with a beautiful smile every day but they're always talking about what is wrong they plant agents so they planted agent around this person that they were trying to perfect and they will put out rumors that this man was the one he was the Mahdi that we've all been expecting and then it wasn't moving fast enough for them they said well what else can we do uh, to make people accept our man that we will control and um, so they had another roundtable discussion and in their uh, world the best ideas rule if you don't see it my way it's off the table they don't operate like that because they want to get the goodness that's in your mind what you're thinking if you believe in something and you're with it then God gives you ideas of how you can perfect it how you can do it better and you don't have to uh, you, you can disagree but don't become disagreeable you know, like I said earlier, you get mad at everybody, take your marbles and go home, and we don't see you no more. You become a 90-day wonder. You, you come in, you're all strong, bow-tied down, MGT down, you understand? Run into a few bumps, 90 days later, we can't find you. It's called a 90-day wonder, okay? 
but you have to work with ideas. So they asked at the table, what are the Muslims looking for? What is their biggest gathering? So another man says, Hajj. And then ones who are not familiar with Islam, what did they do at Hajj? And he walked through the steps of Hajj. And uh, then they go to the slaughter of the lamb. And so one of the CIA agents say, well, what about if we send the laser beam from one of our satellites on the day of slaughter, and as they go to slaughter the lamb, that beam burns the lamb up. And they put their man at the center of it. It's really interesting. When you finish the book, at the back, it's a British man that's behind all of this, you know. Uh, so they said, if we can do that, we can make our man the person that everybody will look to. We will control him and then we will control the Muslim world. And by controlling the Muslim world, we will control the oil. Right now, with the new crown prince of Saudi Arabia and his meeting with Trump and his involvement with Trump, it looked like something like that is being fulfilled because through him, the keepers of the two great sacred places in Islam uh, in Saudi Arabia, if you control them, you control influence into the entire Muslim world. And so this is what this hour that we face right now. So what is our purpose that we're searching for? Is it just to come to the mosque every Sunday? And as I say, and I'm saying it here, and I say it in cities across the country, you look good and God has blessed you to do well. You know, I mean, you have a few bumps in life, but that's the nature of life. If you don't want problems, then you need to get off the planet. God has given you the ability to solve problems. All you have to do is apply it. And if you know that you, you God is with you, you're not committing sin and you know, selling dope on the side, or you're a gun runner, or you're a prostitute sister, or you're a whoremonger brother. You're not doing all of that. So God is with you to bless you in the good that you do. But you have to apply it. Your good is not getting into your fine car every Sunday or Friday or Wednesday night or FOI class and just driving and forget the struggling public that's out there that don't have the knowledge that you have. The knowledge that you have and the discipline that God has blessed you with through this teaching. And then to have the voice of Minister Farrakhan that strengthens you. You know, when you find yourself getting weak sometime and you listen to one of his lectures that I don't care who you are, what God has blessed him with can impact your life. When, when sometimes when things are not going right, I go see the minister, I'll call him on the phone. I have never hung up that phone and not felt better than when I called him. And that's the gift that God has given him as the man over this nation in this hour. But what we have to do, what we have to do, thank you. How do you pronounce that last name? Quinell. The book is called The Mahdi. And you can write it down, M-A-H-A-D. And the A-J-Q-U-I-N-N-E-L-L. And it's out of print, but you can definitely go to eBay or Amazon and get a copy of it. It's a novel, as I said, but it will fascinate you because how contemporary it is right now. So let me go on. 
So in, in this book is talking about what's happening in the world right now. Look how quick um, Trump went to Saudi Arabia. There he is. He hates Islam. During the campaign, he said, Islam is our enemy. How many heard him say that during the campaign? And then he surrounded himself with these generals. I know we're getting an overdose of news about the porno woman and so forth. Now, it becomes obvious that uh, uh, Trump sleeps around and been sleeping around. For poor Melania, she's sitting there and all of this is coming out. I know she's hoping to get back to Slovakia uh, and get the hell out of here with this madness. So... But and I know you have an overdose of news. I mean, I can't stand it. I'm choked with this stuff. What the lawyer did, $130,000. I mean, give me a break. There's something else happening in the world. But you you got to look at some news. So what you could do is when they start talking that, put it on mute. And then until some other news comes up. But you have to know, you have to look at some news of what's happening in the world because we live in this world and it's a reality. So let me try to continue on this. I recently returned from Africa. And most of you know that um, uh, my love and passion for Africa, and you can see it in my book and the articles that I wrote. Um, one of the articles that I opened it up is my love of Africa and I'll never forget how it came about uh, I was in the country of Benin do we have are we gonna have that uh, oh he has it here huh? okay I'm just gonna because probably when I got to Africa I was searching for my purpose in Africa that the minister wanted me to open up an office can you see this is the, is the map too dark Essential down here. This is the Democratic Republic of the Congo. Okay. Um, he's going to try one more map. I was in this country right here. Oh, that's right. He can zoom in on. Called Benin. And most people know Benin. Is anybody from Africa in the audience? Okay. What country are you from, my brother? Nigeria. Nigeria. What state? Kwebu state? Nigeria has, still has 36 states. Overnight, Buhari hasn't made a new state, has he? <laughs> okay. Uh, give me one more. Let me digress one more minute. The president of Nigeria, uh, that's this country right here with 191 million people, the largest population on the African continent. The president is a Muslim. The country is about 72% Muslim, they say, and the other is Christian and animist. Um, he came to America, um, and I, I got to tell this for a minute. Bear with your brother, okay? But um, you know that uh, Trump called African Haiti assholes and then denied it with four people in the room that witnessed that he said it and said, I heard him say it. Then he said, I didn't say it. I mean, my God, give me a break, will you? So last week, Buhari came, the president of Nigeria, and he had him here. And to me, Buhari, uh, good brother, trying to do the best he can with probably the roughest country to manage in the world, Nigeria. And uh, Trump brought him here so that they can get the FIFA um, Cup sponsorship for 2026 and it's voted by nations and he knows that Nigeria has a leadership role in Africa 
But in my opinion, my brother, no disrespect to your president, he should have said that I'll come and I'll talk to you about it after you apologize for calling Africa an asshole. And the African leadership, all of these countries, 54 of them, should have said they should have withdrawn their ambassador from the United States, called him home from Washington, and tell them that I want you to send a letter that we will not be back at our embassy, uh, and the embassy will be closed until you apologize. Now, what does that mean? They do tremendous business with Africa. The visas that they need to go to Africa to do their business, they have to get it from a U.S. embassy. And if that embassy is closed because of the asinine, disrespectful statement that President Donald Trump made about the continent, then our embassies will remain closed. So that's the kind of strength that you have to show. You got power, but you can't capitulate to them because they're giving you a little aid and this and that. That's, that's, that's madness. So let me go back. In my book, the opening uh, chapter is my love of Africa. And when Minister Farrakhan sent me to Africa, most of you know the story. Uh, how many know the story how I got to Africa? I'll see whether I need it. If, do you know the story? Have you heard it? Okay. I'm, I'm going to try. Yeah, I know you all heard it, right? Well, when I tell it, smile like you never heard it, okay? <laughs> so um, I was in this country of Benin. And I was looking for a place, you know, I take people to Africa. Brother, I haven't taken a tour group or an investment group to Nigeria because it's always been a little complicated, you know, not, but it, it's necessary with the market. So I'm looking for, I, I always bring people to Ghana because number one, the slave dungeon. And I live there and I know it the best of any country in Africa. So I'm looking for a nearby country. Uh, Ghana is surrounded by French-speaking countries. Burkina Faso to the north, Togo, then Benin, all speak French. Cote d'Ivoire or Ivory Coast, all of them speak French. So I said, well, let me pick out which one is the best. Most black people in America, if you're of a certain age, you remember Dahomey, but you know Benin because they say it is the seat of the voodoo culture and uh, even the spread of it into the Western Hemisphere in Haiti. So I'm riding and I'm looking for a spot and I go over a lagoon and these lagoons like near uh, Lagos, the capital, these lagoons are actually beautiful. And I saw a beautiful African brother, his glistening skin in the sun rowing on a quiet, almost still uh, lagoon, the water. And I said, and I wrote it in the book, you can read it, that uh, there's a certain beauty and soul to Africa that most people don't know about. Black Americans in particular, because the white man has always beat up on Africa. Make it appear as a place you never want to go. You know, I remember when I first got there and I was trying to encourage brothers to go. I went to brothers my age, seniors, and they said, boy, I ain't lost nothing in Africa and I don't need to go to Africa. And I would always say, yeah, you lost your brains when you left Africa. There's no, you know, at least you should want to see where your people came from. And uh, when I left Benin, I went to the small country. There's a little country here called La Gambia in the mouth of Senegal. And it's the country that uh, Alex Haley found his roots. He found it in a little town or village called Jufri 
all Muslims. And when he wrote to Minister Farrakhan in 1973, I was in the minister's office when he got the letter from Alex Haley. Alex Haley said, Dear Brother Lewis, that's what he called the minister. He said, Malcolm was right. Remember Malcolm, when he was doing his autobiography with Alex Haley, would keep telling him that you came from Africa, you probably came from a Muslim family. But Alex Haley never believed that. And he went on a search. And he ended up finding his roots in Jufri, which is 100% Muslim. This whole area is Islamic. And uh, so I went there because we were looking at a place to go and I wanted to take the believers to visit Jufri. Uh, the minister went there, built a mosque for Alex Haley and his work. Most of the Muslims who've been around a while, you know all about it. And as I got, you crossed the um, Banju um, to Gori Island. There's a river here. I'm trying to think of it. Somebody will look at the river. Maybe you can Google the river. But I crossed the river from Banju to a place called Bari and uh, the Gambia River. And then you drive about two hours up the uh, north side of the river to the village of Jufri. But you're on an African road. And when I looked over at the villages, there were these little African girls playing the game that they play in Africa. They don't have toys and ropes and things that this little young sister. And I said, look at the beauty of this. They don't, they don't act. I'm starving. I'm suffering. They're not by the side of the road begging you. But they're entertaining themselves in the environment that they're in. And that's how I ended up writing this particular uh, article about Africa. But let me try to go on searching for your purpose. So in my life and the 12 years that I lived there, my travel into uh, 44 of the 54 countries, I felt, and looking back at my yearbook, that my purpose in life was to connect Africans in the diaspora with those on the continent. I just feel that. And as a Muslim follower of the Honorable Elijah Muhammad under the guidance of Minister Louis Farrakhan, I just feel that in the nation of Islam, if people want to know about Africa, they call me. If I know, I can tell them or I can tell them where to go and research it. But um, I want to just continue this, if you would bear with me for a minute. Recently, I went to the country of Liberia, right here. And the history of Liberia is unbelievable, because the history of Liberia is the slaves that went back. And uh, because the white people realized that there was a problem. Lincoln realized it, and it's recorded in a book called the Lincoln and the Negro, where he brought in some of the leadership and told them that, you know, the two of us will never exist in peace together. This is Abraham Lincoln who fought the Civil War to free slaves. So he tried to convince them that it would be better if we sent you to Central America, the Caribbean, or back to Africa. And uh, the Negroes, you know what they said, right? No, boss, we want to stay here with you. And that's only because they lack the knowledge of self. Okay, and this is why people talk about, as I said yesterday in California, people talk about all of this black study stuff, this African study. Is it going to make you any money? Boy, get out of that stuff. So evidently, you can see that that's the wrong direction. Recently, Kanye West 
Look at his asinine statement. So the black history professors need to get him and try to screw his head on right. Uh, I'm on a sacred mission. Outside you'll see a map of Africa that I bring from Africa to put a map of Africa in every black American home while I travel and God gives me strength. You say, well, do I need that? It's better than the picture of Kanye and the Kardashian girl on your wall. You got, you got them sitting up on your wall. You, you don't have to throw his picture away because you believe in redemption. I don't know if you can redeem, redeem the Kardashian girl, but, but you could move their picture over and put a picture of a map of Africa on the wall. And so you can say to your children, this is where you came from. And Africa is building now. Their students have gone throughout the world and the one desire, I have not met one African in all of my travel across America that's looking forward to dying in America. He wants to go home. He wants to be put in the soil that gave him life that he was birthed from. And now they're going to take their knowledge back and he hopes that you would join in him. So to know about Africa, look at Ben Carson. While he was at Yale, somebody must have said, said the same thing to him. Boy, get out of that black study stuff. It ain't going to make you no money. Pay attention to your medical career. But getting out of it means that he got out of his mind. So he makes a statement like, we came in the holds of slave ships looking for a better future. Can you imagine somebody saying something as asinine and as stupid as that? And he's the secretary of HUD. So the black professors who know African history, you have a job to do. And I think the glaring example was Kanye West and, and Ben Carson. Okay, because evidently they don't know their history. They don't know their background. If you ask them about the great Mali civilization or Songhai or the Ghana civilization, if you ask them, brother, about Usman Danfolio in the Nigeria and what he built there, the libraries, the canal, they don't know nothing about that. They don't have a clue. And recently when the soldier was killed in Nigeria, the American soldiers that we did not know, there was a thousand of them there. And the question that the American public should have been asking, not only about the death of the four there, but why do we have a thousand American soldiers stationed in the country of Nigeria, but the public knows nothing about it. But if you ask your president, you say your president, your president, Put a map of Africa in front of his office and say, Mr. President, when it first happened, Mr. President, could you point out the country of Nigeria? I guarantee he would scratch that uh, orange hair and be scratching his head. He just wouldn't know. So, so Nigeria is a rich country and the number one rich is that America is putting troops under the guise that we're going to protect you against Boko Haram. We're going to uh, protect you against Al-Qaeda in the Maghreb and so forth. But we really want to protect the uranium that's found in Nigeria. Okay. So this is where we are today, searching for your purpose in life. I want to go over a few more points on this subject. Um, and before I move from it, um, I was blessed uh, to get my, this is my American passport. And this is my uh, Ghana passport. But it's more than just for Ghana. Um, the president who was in office, a man named uh, Muhammad, 
Uh, he came from a Muslim family, not a practicing Muslim. Uh, when he was going out, he belonged to the party of Jerry Rollins. And you know how J close Jerry Rollins is with Minister Farrakhan and so forth, who opened the door for us. Um, so when he was going out, he called me and said, Akbar, if you want to get your passport, you have to come down. We lost the election. So I went over with Brother Earl, some of you know from Las Vegas, who travels with me. And we were able to get our dual citizenship. But it's not just to get this all praises due to Allah. It's not just to get this and set it up on my um, vanity and frame it. But it's a tool. This passport gives me access without a visa to 16 countries. It used to be 17 and what is called ECOWAS. Uh, economic community of West African state, but Mauritania opt out, opted out to be in the Maghreb group. And so all of these countries, including Mali, belong to ECOWAS. And with this passport, I can travel from country to country. When I went to uh, Liberia, all of those that went with me that did not have a Liberian passport uh, or dual citizenship, they had to get a visa in order to go to this country. Uh, if I want to go to your country, Nigeria, and you know how difficult Nigeria can make it to get a visa, you know, a letter from this one, a letter from that one, but I can just get on a plane, land in Nigeria, show my passport. And uh, Gaddafi, before he was brutally murdered, Gaddafi is from here in Libya. Um, he wanted Africans in the diaspora all to have dual citizenship with the continent of Africa. It uh, helps with the movement of not only individuals, but merchandise. You go into business, say if you're going to go to Uganda, okay, or Rwanda, that's a really strong economy now, um, you would go as a citizen of that country being able to do business and whatever you want. So that's the value of it. And I wanted to mention that. And we have some trips coming up when you stop at the table in the back, we'll talk about it. Let me close on this last point, how I got to Africa searching for your purpose in life. Minister Farrakhan, uh, many of you know, in 1986, we embarked on a tour of Africa. And uh, being that I traveled for him, like his ambassador to uh, Africa, his international representative, uh, I asked the people, he was going to do a tour of African countries, what country should he start and first? Because I, I didn't really know. They said Nigeria, because Nigeria has the strongest media. Now, this is almost uh, eight years before South Africa became free. So they said you should start in Nigeria. It has the strongest communication network and their information reaches countries across Africa, even their film industry. If you turn on African TVs in different countries, it's Nigerian film that dominate that, that uh, market. So they recommended uh, Nigeria. Uh, Babangida was the president at the time. So the minister went there and uh, the, a problem came up. Um, I was back holding the ranch down and uh, I went with the minister to London and from London, most of you know the story, he went to get off the plane in London and they blocked him. And since that time he hasn't been able to go to the UK. And so he got on a flight directly from Nigeria. They held him in detention until the flight took off. He got on the flight and one of the most beautiful sites in my autobiography, inshallah, if Allah blesses me to live to finish it, you'll read this. 
We, we go into London. We flew from uh, Chicago on TWA directly to London. And when we go to get off in London, because we were going to change planes to go to Nigeria, but we had a whole day because the Nigerian airline didn't leave until the evening. And we looked out the window and it was all of this press out there. And, you know, at that time, the minister was hot in the press in America. So we thought they were just there to interview him and film that Minister Farrakhan had arrived. But they were there to film his arrest at the airport. So they asked our whole delegation, there was 23 of us, that we should wait behind, which we did. And after everybody got up, then the, the Bobbies, the British police came and said that uh, you're persona non grata, I mean, you cannot come in this country. And if you're transferring, we will detain you. And they gave us a choice either to go in town to jail or sit in a certain holding room there at the airport. And so we, uh, the minister let his family and others go, his sister Farrakhan, Mother Farrakhan was with us to go into town. So the minister waited there all day. And the beautiful part, I'm saying it for my Nigerian brother, uh, this was 1986. And uh, who knows what happened on October the 7th, 1985. Can somebody tell me? Okay. Madison Square Garden. Okay, and I, I'm Madison Square Garden, and uh, for the and I'm putting the responsibility, brother Charles. There's certain aspects, not because my passion for history, but the believers have to know the history. Yes. Now, out of all of these believers in here, brother Hugh, who is up on it as one of the ministers' representative, could tell you what happened on October the seventh, nineteen eighty-five. Because it was one of the greatest meetings we had. 30,000 people showed up. And a mayor told the people not to come to the rally. And you know how black folks are. Don't tell me what to do. White men still telling us what to do. Even if they didn't know or like Minister Farrakhan, they showed up that day. So, so anyway, so the minister waits all day. I go into town with uh, Mother Farrakhan and come back to the airport. And then they escorted the minister under guard to the plane, put him on the plane and gave the pilot, his son Mustafa was with him, gave the pilot uh, their passport and said, turn this over to the Nigerian authorities. So soon as the plane cleared British airspace, the pilot came out and said, Minister Farrakhan, I'm so honored to meet you. I heard you at Madison Square Garden. I was touched. Here's your passport. Okay. Welcome to Nigeria. So it, it was really, it was really a blessing. So let, let me try to fast forward. Bear with me. Okay. What, what time is it here now? 11.30, okay. Well, I'm going to do 15 minutes of questions and answers, so I have 15 minutes. Will you? Can you hang with me for a minute? So, okay, so the plane goes to Nigeria. We set up in Lagos, the art center. I think, uh, when did Abuja become the capital? I think Abuja wasn't the capital in 1986. It was not, right? Okay. And so uh, we went to Lagos. Lagos was the capital, also now the commercial capital. And we set up at the Arts Theater for Minister Farrakhan to address the audience. And the uh, rumor 
was that Minister Farrakhan wasn't a real Muslim and that he came there to start trouble because there was a, a lobbying effort for the uh, Nigeria to join the OIC, the Organization of Islamic Conferences, and, uh, and they wanted to keep Nigeria as a secular state. They didn't want Nigeria to join, so they said that Minister Farrakhan was there to stir up trouble around that. CIA. And uh, then they also said that he was a communist playing like a Muslim. All of this they spread, the rumors. So his engagement after we had laid out tremendous money, I'll tell you the amount, $30,000 for the venue and everything that went with it, hotels. And so they canceled the meeting at the last minute and the minister had to actually cool Khalid out because you know Khalid was ready to fight and so forth because he, he believes in fighting you know they, he said if you ask me my purpose in life I was born to fight fight white folks and have big negroes also so the minister had to cool him out then um, bear with me once you start telling it you got so I was back in America because as, as my heart was broken because the minister said, Akbar, you can come to different places on the trip, but you got to stay there and hold the fort now while I'm gone. So he asked to bring Lou Myers. So we left America and we went to Senegal. And that's a story in itself uh, because uh, we were going to meet the minister. When he finished in Nigeria, he was coming to Senegal right here. And uh, so we got a visa and then they took the visa back from us and I really couldn't understand it. But being that I was an international traveler, I said, well, come on, we'll go to Paris and we'll get a, a visa in Paris and go to Senegal. So we went to Paris, Lou and I, we got the visa, went to Senegal. So we was at the airport and me as a happy jack, I'm at uh, uh, immigration. I give him my passport. I got a visa in it now. And I said, did uh, the Honorable Minister Louis Farrakhan delegation arrive yet? And the uh, guy behind the screen said, are you with Farrakhan? I said, yes. He said, come with me. So <laughs> and so they uh, detained us and said that, that they were going to deport us. We had to leave. And then I, I tried to talk to him and convince him. I said, well, because when he left uh, Senegal, he was going to the Gambia. So I said, well, could you please just let me go to the Gambia from here? They said, no, you got to go back to Paris. And then we found out a news team from America was in Senegal waiting. And it was this man, Levine, from Chicago. So Lou and I immediately got suspicious. So we called the minister and said, don't come to Senegal. They got something set for you. And we don't know what it is, but they're deporting us back to Paris. So we had to go back to Paris, then get a flight that would take us, and we went to Ghana. And so the minister left Nigeria and went to Ghana. And they told Rollins the same thing, that Minister Farrakhan was a problem. And that he was going to stir up problems in the Muslim community. And so, but Rollins had a philosophical saying because he was at odds with the U.S. government anyway because he was a socialist. So Rollins say, when they say do A, I do Z. So he let the minister in, but he watched him. And for 13 days, we were in the headlines every day. 
minister went all over the country and the first thing that Rollins did is he had the minister to speak to the ulema, the Muslim leaders and uh, the minister, you know him, he just overwhelmed them and uh, they reported to Rollins and so right before, a few days before he left Rollins actually let him speak to the military leadership of Ghana and in Africa the military is what determines whether you stay in power or go out of power when you read the history of Nigeria you can see it clearly if somebody don't like what the president is doing gets his army together and there's a coup okay so what happened Rollins let him in he spoke Rollins even let him address the military and he told him they told me that this man was no good, but when they say do A, I do Z, Z. And I only found him to be a noble son of Africa. And the minister delivered a beautiful speech, so we're about to leave. Bear with me. We're about to leave. I'm there with him now. So it was Lou Myers, myself, and Colin. We're sitting in the room. So Rollins gives us a military plane to go to a country to see a young leader it used to be called, called Upper Volta but Burkina Faso okay a French speaking country the capital is Ouagadougou and you may have heard the name because they have the African Film Festival Worldwide African Film Festival there every February every two years so he gives us a plane we're right here in uh, Accra Ghana to fly to the capital so we're in the VIP lounge at the airport um, and Rollins comes in and we're talking and he's thanking the minister for everything and telling him you must come back and so forth then Rollins says do you have an office in Africa and the minister said no so Rollins said why don't you open an office in Africa and open it right here so the minister thought for a minute and said yes we could do that and he said, uh, I can send Dr. Khaled Muhammad. He's brilliant in African history and so forth. And so the minister told him he would send Khaled to open the office. Khaled came back, started studying French because, as I said, Ghana is surrounded by French-speaking speak countries, Togo, Burkina Faso, Cote d'Ivoire. All of these speak uh, French. So Khaled came back and the Muslims who've been around a while realized that he got into some difficulty Khaled went to jail and so I get another invitation while traveling in Africa for the minister to come back to Ghana and speak at the 80th birthday uh, celebration of Dr. Kwame Nkrumah the first leader of Ghana and so the minister accepts the invitation and his birthday is uh, September the 21st uh, Dr. Kwame Nkrumah, it would have been his 80th. So we go to Accra, the minister delivers a beautiful speech. I'm sorry that we misplaced the tape, but it was an excellent speech. And it was about the unity of Africans in the diaspora and those on the continent. And so Rollins meets us in the VIP room in back of the hall and say, Farrakhan, when you were here the last time, you promised me you were going to open an office. I'm calling you on that promise now. <laughs> So you know how gracious the minister is. He explained to him that the brother I was sending, Dr. Collett, who was here and you met, he had some difficulty and uh, he couldn't do it. He, then the minister said, however, Akbar is getting ready to come to Africa to another country. I was for a year to study Arabic and French and exchange to teach the struggle of the African-American uh, struggle in America at uh, 
at the university there. So Guyunas Gai University or the one in uh, Tripoli. And so maybe the minister said, maybe I could ask Akbar to open the office and come here instead of going to uh, Libya. So I didn't scratch my head. I didn't say, well, Brother Minister, let me check with my wife. I, <laughs> I got up. I said, yes, sir, Brother Minister. <laughs> and uh, and uh, that's how I got to Africa, okay? I'm searching for purpose in my life as you search for purpose in your life. And then it started rolling from there. But that's the way it happened. And then there's a long, ongoing story. The minister went to Burkina Faso. The young leader, uh, about a year later, was killed, Thomas Sankara. You can read about him, unbelievable history. And the young brother who was the leader of that country was a musician also. And uh, so that's how it started rolling. I want to close out on a few points that I want to make because we have a responsibility in this time of great trouble for America. Um, the Honorable Elijah Muhammad taught us clearly that uh, Allah would destroy America. She's uh, about, how, how, how old is America since her Declaration of Independence? Is it 322 years or 222 years? Somebody tell me. Help me out. How much is it? Okay, 226. Okay, that's, you got that uh, the miracle of that computer there. But the Honorable Elijah Muhammad taught us, taught Minister Farrakhan and taught Malcolm. And uh, for those who want to understand uh, how Malcolm felt, there's a book that Malcolm made, 242 years. That's how old, old America is. And civilizations go up and they come down. No civilization just lasts forever. Ancient Egypt had a time period. Uh, Mesopotamia, all of the great civilizations in China and in India, there was a time frame. They went up and they came down. You know, um, Hitler wanted to build an empire. But from 1933, when he was, uh, became the chancellor, don't forget the German people elected Hitler. It wasn't that he was a dictator and there was an overthrow. And Hitler was a Christian. See, Muhammad Ali did it the best when he went to the 9-11 uh, uh, where the buildings came down. Muhammad Ali went there to say a prayer for those who lost his life. And one of the reporters said, Ali, how do you feel about the people of your faith who did this? And Ali told him, he said, well, I feel about the same way that uh, you feel about Hitler, who was a Christian, and look at what he did. Now, Ali was sharp now. He, and, and the art of Ali is that he could think on his feet. You know, he could think on his feet. He, wasn't a, he didn't have a degree, you know, and so forth. He didn't go to college. But he was a follower of the Honorable Elijah Muhammad, and this teaching gave him the ability to think on his feet. So civilizations uh, rise and fall. The Honorable Elijah Muhammad said we, in his book, Fall of America, we live in the time of the fall of America. And because we live in that time, we look for signs. Look at the weather. I mean, between, we thought that winter would never end out uh, east, you know, and up north. But look at the weather and look at the condition of the country. Look at the senseless killing in the country. 
Look at the school shooting. And it's a shame that they don't call the school shootings white on white crime. Because right. it's white boys killing their own people. But they, they give you the name black on black crime. White on white crime. And look at the way it's going. Look at America stretching out through the world. Their armies are everywhere. They're like ancient Rome. And now they're doing what Rome did. They're calling foreigners into the army. You want to get an American passport or green card or citizenship? Join the U.S. Army. So they got foreigners fighting their battles while the Congress and the Senate is home arguing over a porno act, actor who was sleeping with the president while the world is going to hell. It's only a sign. It's like the sign of the fall of the Roman Empire where the senators were now living rich. Look at the billions of dollars being spent. Look at the man who was appointed a post in the cabinet, but he was on jet trips going, spending the taxpayers' money on vacations and all of that. This is the fall of America. And as America falls, it's the hour of the rise of the black man and black woman. But at the center of that, they need a spiritual uh, substance that will hold them together, make them moral and decent people that they will not fall victims to the filth of the white man's western world. Thank you. May Allah bless you. Assalamu alaikum. All praise is due to Allah. All praise is due to Allah. Thank you. Um, I'm about five minutes over, but I'm going to try to move it quickly. But I want to thank you very much. Thank you for your attendance today. Uh, Brother Minister Charles, I hope this is a good attendance, okay? Um, but I thank you very much. And most of you know that I'm traveling around the country on a tour of my book. I haven't put it on eBay uh, or Amazon or even in the final call because I wanted this personal interaction with the believers. Uh, we worked hard to rebuild the nation and I used to fly once a week to California sometimes twice as we were building Moss number 27 back and forth the minister would dispatch me to New York and Washington and all of the brothers and sisters that came to help him uh, in the early days many of them are still out there and uh, some of them have to come to public meetings if restrictions keep them from coming to the mosque. And I hope that the minister would open that door to some of them who really love him and want to be near the believers, you know, at a time of great crisis in America. And uh, I pray to Allah that we can do it in each city. But our work has to go on. There are people out there that are searching the jails, three and a half million brothers and sisters in the jail. Every mom should have a strong jail ministry. And it's more than going to the jail and teaching a good lecture. But his services, when he get out, what is he going to do? What is he studying there? How's his family? We can uh, get buses in the state of uh, Arizona, Florence, Arizona, the main federal prison is in this state. Yeah, state, and um, they job prisoners out, the federal government. But the, many families can't even afford to come and see their relatives in jail. So there could be a prison uh, service where we rent a bus and take people because we have to cultivate a relationship. You know, in guerrilla warfare, the brothers asked me to talk on guerrilla warfare at the uh, GM's uh martial arts seminar and I said no I can't talk on that because the enemy is listening to me if I talk on guerrilla
guerrilla warfare. They think that we planning guerrilla warfare, and that's why the brothers are in there training and so forth. So I said, I can't talk on that. But I can talk on the principles of it, and that's cultivating relationship. Even if you invite people to come to uh, hear Minister Charles on Sunday or whatever day, and they don't come, but you've extended that invitation to them. Be kind to them. Don't cuss them out when they don't come. They came all the way by here to pick you up, and that Negro said he had to go to the hospital. His mother broke her leg. And the Honorable Elijah Muhammad said Negroes' tongues are bent in a lie, and they are very creative. My daughters used to tell me, Dad, we starting a new company. I said, uh, what is the company? We make excuses. If you need... <laughs> They, they had they had two things. My daughters used to crack me up. They comic. They had one called the move out service, and the excuse like you need an excuse. You burned out excuses. Why you're not going to work today? You call them, and they give you a creative new excuse. The the, the clean out service was sister. You want to leave that man? We have a clean out service. When he goes to work that morning, we will have that house completely empty and clean. And when. They, <laughs> <laughs> so, <laughs> but but our people make excuses but it should never stop you from trying I think about the brother who brought me to the mosque I challenged him and he brought me to the mosque it was the greatest thing that happened but I was telling him I'd been there my tongue was bent in the lie I was a little hood rat in New York and uh, so I told him no I've been there I know that stuff like they tell you but I had not so he convinced me well go with me then and that's how I ended up going to the mosque and I'm only saying that to you uh, sister Ava really said it beautifully last night you know don't get bourgeois I mean bourgeois and you're thinking about yourself and your work if you're bourgeois because you got some money now and you control some money you in business and uh, don't get confused now. It says the poor righteous. So have you taken a vow in poverty? No. Okay. <laughs> you gotta you gotta make money in order to live. But don't get bourgeois in your thinking that that's them. And let me get to the mosque. You know, brother, you laid out your bow tie, your beautiful white whites on, sister, and you pass all of these people. But we haven't taken time in a whole week. And fishing is a science. And I thank Allah for Captain Yusuf Shah in New York. Because he was on us. If he was at the door when you come in and you came in there all sharp, new haircut, you know, nice, crisp, white shirt. He would say, brother, where's your guest? You know? And you say, well, brother captain, I don't have one today. Well, just go out and get one. You can come back in here when you got one. So the brothers became experts. They had a bottle of Listerine in their back pocket, you know, understand? Because the brothers were drinking and whatnot or smoking dope and smelling like it. they make them goggle their breath. And they said that if you come on to the mosque, then maybe I can tell you where you can get a job at. But they would go back because the pressure was on them. But I'm going to tell you that we used to have the mosque packed. Our lowest attendance in New York in the early 60s was 300. When Malcolm would come off the road and he would come back, we had seven to 900 people. There were no seats in the mosque. But also, it was the time of history that we were in. The civil rights struggle was going on. People were searching for their purpose in life or purpose in that struggle. And while people were looking, they were coming to the mosque, listening and so forth. 
And they came to the mosque to hear, but it's always your offering a helping hand. And so if you're going to live in this hour, go ahead and make history. Mosque number 32, you can make that kind of history. You can keep the mosque packed. You can uh, inspire a young brother or a young sister in their own life, even if they don't accept tomorrow. But it's your words to them. Martin Luther King made a trip to Africa. And um, when I go around the country, most people don't know anything about it. They know about it after I talk about it. Who knows what country he went to? Martin Luther King. Most people don't even know he went to Africa. Why is it that the white man don't highlight his trip to Africa? It was an important trip. If you want to read about it, if you like to read it, and you can look at, up at the book of Minister Hugh, it's called The Days of Martin Luther King by Jim Bishop. Okay, and in the book you'll see that Martin Luther King had worked hard in 1956 and 7 with the bus boycott in Montgomery, Alabama, and the deacon board said the pastor needs a vacation. And so they were going to send them to Europe because that's the way Negroes think. If you want to go somewhere and see the world, you go to Europe. Go where white folks go, okay? So Martin Luther King, and he was the one, according to the book, that he said, isn't there some country in Africa becoming free soon? And so one of the deacons said, yeah, a country called Ivory Coast. Excuse me, Gold Coast. Okay, can we get the map up? Is the map. Uh, Gold Coast. That was the name of Ghana be before it became Ghana. That's another lecture for another time. How did it become Ghana? Uh, so Martin Luther King said, I think I'd like to go there. Then he outlines in the book how he uh, left from New York, stopped in Portugal, ended up in Ghana. But the important thing is the letter that he wrote. I shouldn't say letter. The lecture that he delivered. And you can read it. The, the miracle of King. And in the last four years with the minister talking on Martin Luther King, my whole respect level for him has grown. Unbelievable mind. He, he had the ability to write out his lectures, but not deliver them like this. And tomorrow we will go so and so. I mean, he delivered it. You could feel him in his lecture. He came back from Ghana tremendous independence and I met with a black man who lived in Ghana, black American and he was there with King and he helped move King from the outside of the city into the heart of the city uh, but the thing that King got back, and you can look this up, April the 7th 1957, it's online, go to King's speeches and you'll see a speech called A New Nation is Born and what King wrote in that speech talking about this connection to Africa and this new nation and so forth. Unbelievable. He delivered it April the 7th, 1957 at the Dexter Street Baptist Church in Montgomery, Alabama. So I'm saying that it made an impact on his life. I'm only saying this to say the people that you bring to the mosque, very few come in and say, ah, later for that stuff they're talking about. But there's something in Minister Charles's lecture that will touch a core in them because it's right there. And all of them are searching for a purpose in life if you're a human being. If the purpose is that I want a sister get married to a good man, I want to raise some babies, you know, and let those babies be whole and not broken men or women. If that's your desire, your purpose in life may be that.
So King impacted the world. And it's amazing that it was Africa that inspired him that they don't talk about because they don't want the youth to connect or see any connection with the African continent. Okay, I don't want to teach another lecture. This is the section that we open up. How, how many are here for the first time? Never been here before. Never been out. Oh, praise the due to Allah. Oh, praise the due to Allah. If you're here for your first, second, or third time, and that you want to become a part, just try it, of what we're doing. Just try it in your own life. And uh, we're not perfect. But it's difficult to find another group as solid as us around. No, I, <laughs> we're in 168 cities, and we may get on your nerve. We have a tendency to do that, okay? But that same door that opened up to let you in, you just leave. But what you learn here, I can tell you for a surety, will live with you the rest of your life. Just, you won't, I mean, even if you don't practice it, you know, we're not pork eaters. You say, is that important, Akbar? It is important because what that pork does to you not only makes you ugly as hell, but it makes you dumb as hell. <laughs> but um, but once you hear it and read the Honorable Elijah Muhammad's book on how to eat to live and so forth, you cannot come away from that book and go back to sucking on some chitlins. Just can't do it. You, you, and, you, and you say, I know when you stop eating chitlins. You say, I always knew something was wrong with them because when I cleaned them, they stunk like hell. Oh, hell yeah. You got that. <laughs> Anything that smells that bad, you're not supposed to be eating. So, um, but those who are here for your first, second, or third time, uh, we would like to know if you would like to become a part of this. I'm going to take questions for about 10 minutes, but I wanted to get that out of the way because you may want to leave before the questions are over. Don't forget in the back, you can stop at the table, get the current edition of the final call. I'll be back there after the questions to autograph any book that you have or any other questions. We did not have enough flyers on our trips to Africa, but I'll make sure we get some back to uh, Minister Charles. We have, uh, let, let me just show you, we got a few up here. Okay, how many did not get the, the flyers, okay? So we're going to try to find some more in the back. And uh, if somebody could ask my son, did he search through the bags to get the uh, flyers for our tr upcoming trips the rest of this year in 2019 to Africa? So, uh, okay, now those, how many would like to get involved in what we're doing and at least learn about it? Can I see if I raise your hand? All praise the Utah. Okay. So if you would like to now, there may be a sister or brother. I would like to shake your hand, but if you, okay, well, let me shake your hand, and then you can see the sister come right up front. Don't be shy. I'm not going to baptize you. I don't have to come. Come on down, sisters. Let's give them a big round of applause, brothers and sisters. All praises due to Allah. Thank you, beloved sister. What's your name, sister? She was trying to point out the brother who who brought her to the mosque today. Who is? Thank you very much, brother. Amin. Okay. Thank you. Thank you. Anyone else? Another. Come right up. Don't. If you don't want to come up, you're a little. Uh, you know. 
shy. Grown Negroes being shy. I don't know about that. But you can uh, see the secretary. Any one of these sisters will help you on your way out. Okay? Any brothers? Any brothers? Okay, if you don't come. Uh -uh. How are you doing, my brother? Thank you very much. Who, who brought you out today? My name is Allah Kodori. Okay, where are you from? I'm from Togo. Togo, okay. Yeah. And Togo is right next to Ghana, I mentioned yeah. it. Uh, F1. Mofon. Mofon, okay. Uh, okay, Ape. Okay, they speak airway there. And the capital is Lomi. And it's right next to Ghana. So there's a lot of airway people. When the white folks divided up Africa, they had no respect for boundaries or areas where people live. They just cut it right in half. So they cut Togo. Togo, and you know my passion is history. Togo was ruled by the Germans first. And it was called Togoland. And then it became independent in 1960 when 17 countries in Africa became independent. So I know a lot of airway speaking brothers and sisters. Okay. Okay. The brothers will take care of you. Okay. Thank you. Okay. So, um, in, in his language, Apeh means thank you. Okay. Ibu or Yoruba? Effie. And, uh, and Hauser. Okay. Kolafia. Okay. <laughs> okay. Um, I'm going to open up the floor for questions, okay, before I teach another subject, okay? So, uh, do we have any questions? Please stand. Please stand. How do you get it? Yes. Well, Ghana has a policy. Have you been to Africa? Yes. Okay, what countries have you been to? Uh, Ghana. Ghana, okay. Very good. So, Ghana has um, the Minister of Interior now is offering dual citizenship. So, you need to make another trip to Ghana. You apply. Uh, it costs uh, right now, unless they went up since I got mine, uh, somebody divide 450 into 600 for me. 450 into 600. You can do it right on yourself. I'm going to give you the approximate price. Um, then you get sworn in. You have to stay there. They have certain days of the month. I think they do it twice a month. So you have to find that out. Then your involvement in Ghana is also important. You may want to go on business. You want to teach. Okay. We're reaching out for retired teachers who got their retirement money. And I know teachers are going through a change now and uh, would like to uh, go to countries in Africa and use your skill. And the reason that the black American community is important because image is everything. A whole lot of white people who go. Uh, those who are old enough to remember the Peace Corps, the reason that there were so many black people in the Peace Corps because it represented a free trip to get to Africa. So uh, I can give you some details uh, if you come to the table. But go ahead. You had another question. Then. Okay. Great. Absolutely. Absolutely. Thank you, sister. Good question. Yes, ma'am. Uh, I 
How, so how much does it come now? One is it that okay? That's Sister Betty. Oh, Sister Carol. Okay, I can't see the light is up here, but it comes to one hundred and one hundred and thirty-three dollars. That's what it costs to get your passport. There may be other little fees, you know, the pictures and so forth, and uh, that's that's what it costs. Okay, um, brother Robert, did brother Robert, did y'all get your uh, dual citizenship yet? Okay, where where are you, brother? Okay, so not yet. Okay, you should get it. You got a property there. You got a beautiful home. You know, in that area that you living in, the plots are going up every day. Yeah, so okay. Any other questions? Yes, ma'am. I have a question, Brother Akbar. I heard that the slave be descendants of the slaves who returned to Liberia. Yes. Become very resentful and hostile when they are associated or recognized as or told that they are the descendants of slaves. They don't want to be associated with that period of history at all. Someone from Nigeria told me that. So, and if there's this distance between the two. Okay. Do you know anything about that? Yes, I do. Um, first of all, the one from Nigeria who tried to explain, I know what he was trying to explain. When the, when the slaves were returned, and that's an unbelievable history if you could read it. Just uh, if you go, Henry Louis Gates, uh, um, he's not one of my favorite persons, but he is a historian. The last series he did on Africa on the National Geographic television was good. His other one left a lot to be desired. But uh, they're called uh, Americo-Liberians. These are the descendants from the slaves, and you can tell by their last name. They got white people's last name. And uh, so the indigenous people, there were people that lived there when they settled. And the indigenous people um, did not want people to think that they were uh, Americo-Liberians. But the Americo-Liberians ended up dominating their society and they came back with the only mentality they knew and that was the mentality of the slave master that they were slaves under and they tried to use that uh, in Liberia because of their superior knowledge of things that the li indigenous Liberians did not know. So it set up this kind of class system, but then later they began to intermarry. And one of the coups that caused the tragedy of uh, Liberia, uh, backed by Ronald Reagan and his racist self, um, there was the sergeant named Doe who overthrew the Talbots. The Tubmans and the Talbots were the descendants that were ruling but the American government had a problem with Talbot because he was siding with the African uh, countries who were struggling for independence. And so they backed a coup. He overthrew Talbot, killed him viciously, uh, and it created this clash between the American Liberians and the indigenous people there. And uh, so it's, a, it's a, a history full. It's another lecture that I have to give. But that's the way it is. He was trying to explain it to you, but he just had it a little off in terms of that. Okay? Thank you. Yes, ma'am. Wa alaikum salam. I just wonder, I know that family is a tourist who, a segregated tourist, that not a high 
Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, that's one of my passions. Allah blessed me to bring 3,000, approximately 600 people to Africa in the 12 years I was there. The biggest group was when we had our convention, October the 7th, 1994, in Accra. We brought 1,900. Who was on that trip with us? Wow, look at that. That wasn't an awesome trip. It was like unbelievable. And uh, the way that that trip sticks with you, when you think of Africa, you think of that trip. And the way it sticks with you is how a trip to Africa will stick with you. I use an axiom. It says that uh, it's better to see Africa once than to hear about it a thousand times. And ask God to bless you. You know, put off that big 60-inch flat TV that you want to get to watch the football game. You know, put it off and say, I'm going to take this money and put it into a trip to Africa that will live with me the rest of my life. Okay, we're going to take two more questions. I got, let me get a brother now. Yes. Go right ahead, my brother. I, I didn't hear that. Say that again. Yes. It has done a lot. In the forward of my book, I talk about being grateful to Minister Farrakhan. Because when I came to Africa or went to Africa, I really didn't know what I was going to do. I knew I wasn't going to set up a little place and call it Muhammad's Mosque. You know, half of the people in the country are Muslims. When they think of Mosque, that's a place to go and pray. So we called it the NOI Information Center. And, and we had a little area in the back where we would lecture to the people and so forth. And, uh, but it was the greatest experience of my life. And uh, it turned my head around completely. Um, and I thank Allah for it. So I hope if, uh, if uh, I'm blessed to live in my autobiography, which is my next book, is 80%. Uh, completed. I got to do the legal stuff and it takes money to do that. So when you buy my book in the back, Africa in the World by Akbar Muhammad, you're helping me to raise the money to do the legals because there was a great book written um, by Dr. Manning Marble called The Reinvention of Malcolm X. A lot of it I disagree with. How many have ever seen that book? Okay. The uh, reinvention of Malcolm X, Dr. Manning Marble, he died four days before the book came out. But he covers Malcolm's trips to Africa better than anyone else. And even though the scholars disagreed with him and went, uh, you know, off on him when the book came out, uh, most of them who criticized the book didn't read the book. If you read the book, you'll see that it's not the rumors that they have in the public. But anyway, brother, yes, it did change change my life as a Muslim and a follower of the Honorable Elijah Muhammad under the guidance of Minister Farrakhan. Thank you very much. Okay, there's no other questions. I want to thank you very much. I'm going to turn the mic back into uh, Minister Charles and uh, please join me in the back at the table. Uh, and I hope that you'll take home one of our books. Thank you very much. Assalamu alaikum. Also, I want to mention that we have uh, maps of Africa. Don't forget the goal is to put one up and use it with your children or your young people at home 
And uh, if you can just move some of the artists off the wall and put up a map of Africa, and I'm sure you can explain that good. Thank you. Thank you, Thank you Brother Minister. Come on, brothers and sisters, let's hear it for our beloved big brother, Abdul Akbar Muhammad, the international representative of the Honorable Minister Louis Farrakhan and the Nation of Islam. Okay, yes, sir. Thank you. Yes, sir. All praise is due to Allah. Let's hear it again for the Honorable Minister Louis Farrakhan's international representative, Brother Student Minister 